Hey there, Scott here from Social Energy Presents, and thanks so much for joining us. We've got another really great episode for you today, this time with special guest Sam Feldman, one of the most successful managers in the music business and the CEO of Canada's largest full-service talent agency, SL Feldman & Associates. Sam has worked with countless artists over the years and now represents more than 200 internationally acclaimed performers, including Robbie Williams, Dido, Coldplay, David Gray, Sarah McLaughlin, Brian Adams, Diana Krall, Nelly Furtado, and the Bare Naked Ladies. And now Sam joins us from his special oasis in Hawaii to discuss his life, his successes, and his incredible career in the music industry. So sit back, relax, and get ready as Social Energy now presents you with your Backstage Pass. Hey, Mick, how you doing? Great to see you. Thanks for yeah, joining us today. Great. How you been? <laughs> Excellent. Thanks. <laughs> wow. I'm just, I'm really enjoying this camera. Um, I was going to say, uh, yeah, it's going to be great having Sam on the show. I haven't talked to Sam in years, so we've got a, we've got a, a lot of things to unpack with him for sure. Oh, this is going to be wow. an exciting show. Well, without further ado, why don't we bring the guest of honor in, Mr. Sam Feldman. Hi, there Sam. How you doing? Good. Welcome okay. to the show. Welcome to the show, Sam. Thanks. Do you want me to go back on the gallery or do it like this? Just yeah, whatever you'd you. like. This is good. I was going to say, so Sam, uh, I haven't talked to you. You know, I haven't talked to you for about, I'm thinking it's close to 20 years. It's weird. You know, uh, the last time you and I were actually in person, I think, this is going to, this will bring you back. I, it was at Buffalo Bills and Whistler and you had Boy and a Dolphin there. That band. Oh, wow. wow. Yeah, that's how long ago it was. And, and I was there because I think I was doing some sort of a solo gig up in Whistler. And I walked in to see them because I'd heard so much about them. I actually ended up singing on their album at one point. But I remember walking in. And I was so impressed with them. And I remember you walked up to me and you said, what, what do you think of these guys? And I, you know, I, mean, I was going, they're great. Why are you asking me? You know? <laughs> but you've always been good that way, though. You've always been good with me. You know, I mean, I, I've always, I remember back in the days of Sham, even, I remember Frank Ludwig saying, you know, like, he says, you know, Sam is such a humanitarian manager compared to Bruce, <laughs> you know, because <laughs> Bruce was always sort of known as the rough guy. And you were always a guy that sort of nurtured people, you know. And so hey, I think that's. Hey, that's hey, yeah. Yeah. Well, I joke, you know, it's uh, we had a good cop, bad cop thing, but, uh, you know, it, it didn't take much to be the good cop. okay i want to i want to open up a few things here first of all uh where were you born shanghai china Uh, shanghai china how does that happen what did your parents do well (laughs) there's a number of ways to answer that question uh well so my my family is originally from russia like my mom was born in russia my dad was actually born in harbin china which is right across the river from uh, Russia, where a lot of Russian Jews used to escape. Yeah, a lot of, there's a lot of anti-Semitism in Russia, so they used to get in a boat, get get across to, to China. And China never had any kind of a passport control issue, or and they didn't care if you're you're you know Jewish or whatever because you just looked a certain way. So there was a big community of Russian Jews in Harbin that gravitated to Shanghai, which was really in those days almost a European city with French, British, Persians. Russians, English, you know, sort of in, in, in a sense, living on top of the, the Chinese, you know, uh, were all, not all, but they were, you know, they were the, the laborers at that time. It's not a fair situation that got rectified in a very violent way later uh, when Mao Zedong came in. So, uh, uh, you know, we had to split, get, you know, get out of there and uh, wound up in Vancouver. 
What, what, what year did you move to Vancouver? What year did you move to Vancouver? Yeah, 51. I was just a baby and two and a half years old. Okay. Because I was going to say, um, it's interesting because because you sort of touched a bit on the anti-Semitism thing. Now, me, as you know, I'm from Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario. Our whole ethnic community was so tiny. There was Italians and French people and, you know, and Catholics and Protestants. There was, I think we had one black family and he was the teacher at my high school. There was one black family in 75,000 people at the time. You know, it was just such a close community. So I knew nothing about the Jewish thing at all, except when I watched Ed Sullivan, it seemed like all the comedians were Jewish. They always talked about this Jewish, Jewish thing. And aside from my catechism and learning about Jesus, I knew nothing about Judaism, you know? So, and so what, the anti-Semitism thing was just something that never, ever hit me. It was something I never even thought of, you know, but you actually lived through that crap. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I wish I was too, I was too young to know it, but growing up, uh, yeah, it didn't really, my dad used to ask me, you know, has anyone ever made any comments in, in early on in um you know high school so not really and that that also started to happen the odd time and, and uh people would make some comments and i would be what what it was just so weird and of course uh then the fight was on because there was a lot of uh yeah there was a lot of brawling back then so what so what were you like as a student in school Terrible. were you always were you an worse. academic no no worse school school uh, to me was was painfully i mean painfully boring i couldn't stand it i would do anything i could to get out of school i was basically a bit of a juvenile like but so uh i would say i maybe got grade 10 education at best you and me both i don't have my grade 10 yeah but the only difference is you have talent <laughs> yeah well as, as he speaks from his place in hawaii okay so <laughs> i don't, I don't yeah, know talent comes yeah, but, in different ways buddy but, well the difference yeah well then again the other difference is i spent more time in a pool hall so i learned a few things <laughs> yeah well that's that's the thing so i want to sort of get into how you became who you were now now you started I think, if I'm not mistaken, you sort of worked lumber camps sort of thing until you came back to Vancouver and started working in nightclubs. Is this correct? Kind of? Is that an idea? No, that's a bit, that's a bit glamorous. I just, uh, you know, the story's probably redundant by now. But um, as a young guy, the whole thing for, for kids when they were 17, 18, 19 was to uh, go travel around Europe with some of your buddies. So, so I, I had gone up to Prince Rupert to, to work in a pulp mill to make some money basically to go, you know, hang around Europe with my buddies. And, uh, but when I got back to Vancouver, I guess this was probably 67 or six, 67, 68, somewhere in there. And of course I immediately spent all the money. So I couldn't go to Europe until I got into a couple of poker games and I used to gamble a bit. So I got lucky, made enough money, got to Europe, uh, traveled around for about six months. And in that process, I ran out of money. So I borrowed 300 bucks from a very good friend of mine to get back home. And, when I, and it was the strangest thing. I'll never forget it. I'm sitting on the plane going back home, and my friend that I was with said, so, you know, let's get some money and come back to Europe. And I looked at him and said, you know, it's the weirdest thing, but I just have this strong feeling that I'm going to get into something that's going to kind of take me away as a career, and I really want to get into the music business. Now, don't even ask me why. Uh, I, just, I just had a, a pull. I wanted to get into the music business. So when I got back, now I owe my friend 300 bucks. I'm going to get 300 bucks at the time. It might as well have been a billion to me. It was just, it was just so it's amazing. Now, you know, you, 
I think $300 is just an epic amount of money. And I was just about to head back up north just to make the money to pay him back and so on. And a friend of mine was working at a nightclub, um, the Daisy Cabaret. And he said, you know, uh, we need a doorman over here, you know, like a bouncer doorman. Today I refer to it as maitre d', but really it was bouncer. And I thought, wow, there's bands on the stage and the stage is like, you know, 15 feet from the door and um, that therefore I'm 15 feet from the band. If I take that job, I'm going to learn something about the music business. I'll get into it. But I agonized for a, for a whole weekend because I owed this 300 bucks. And, uh, you know, what am I going to do? Because this job pays like $2 and 25 cents an hour. <laughs> and uh, so I went to my buddy who is still one of my very best friends and said, look, here's the deal. You know, if I take this job, you know, I'm going to learn something. If I go up north, I'll pay you a lot. Or he said, oh, it's going to be ridiculous. You'll pay the money. Just, you know, do, it, do what you want to do. So I started to work at the, at the Daisy Cabaret, Fifth and Fur, which ironically is five blocks from my current office. So I, I like to joke that I've come five blocks in my whole career. <laughs> and um, <laughs> and uh, two weeks later, there was a friend of mine from high school that was in a band. And I went, well, I think I know everything there is to know now. I've worked at this club for, for two weeks. What else could I possibly need to know? And uh, I said, I'll be your manager. A band called Uncle Slug, not to be confused with Doug and the Slug, but Uncle Slug. Right. And I started to manage that band. And then I started to manage another band called Sweet Beaver. And then uh, and then there was a guy, Tony White, who had a little agency uh, that he ran out of the Daisy. And he, so he hired me and I started to book bands and work the door. And, you know, one thing led to the next. And, uh, you know, here it is, a uh, hundred years later. So you said you, you thought you wanted to get into the music business. So who you, you must have been a fan of some acts or something, something that must have attracted you to the music business. Oh, I, well, I mean, on the music side, I was, I was, you know, he, he I still am, uh, you know, a huge music fan. Um, I mean, growing up, you know, in my era was, was pop music. Uh, the first, the first single that I ever bought in my life, don't ask me why was Del Shannon runaway must have played it. You know, I was like 10 years old or something. And then, uh, then I really got into the whole uh, Motown thing later on. Uh, that was my favorite music, but loved rock and roll, loved Sinatra. Um, the Beatles came along. I was in the hospital with pneumonia and uh, I had a little two transistor radio and I'll never forget it. I'm lying there feeling second all and the song came on and I literally, I'd never, because I was out of the loop in the hospital, I'd never heard, I'd never heard of the Beatles, but the song came on the radio and I can remember picking that radio, just looking at, I'm just looking at it. I go, what is that? This is unbelievable. Fantastic. First Beatles single and this like, just blew me away. And then a week later, they're on the Ed Sullivan show that you referenced. So loved, obviously loved the Beatles and then got into the whole English British invasion stuff. And of course, then it was whole uh, Bob Dylan changed it all again. I, was, I can remember hearing him for the first time, oddly enough, walking up a street in Vancouver and there was a beatnik restaurant called the black spot. All you young guys, maybe don't, don't even know what beatniks are, but they were the pre hippie thing. And, uh, and I'm walking past this restaurant and all of a sudden this music came out. And it stopped me, like literally stopped me in my tracks on the street. And I just, I just couldn't believe what I was hearing. And I listened to this whole song, Positively Four Street, Dylan got into that. And uh, so my, I mean, my taste in music has been really, really eclectic. But at the same time, um, growing up, I always wondered, uh, you know, how does this work? You know, here's a concert. Who's putting it on? Who's making the money? Who does what? What's the backroom stuff? And uh, I was just looking for a way to get into the music business. At the beginning, I didn't know if I'd be a promoter, a manager, or what. 
Well, I actually threw I threw a gig at the uh, um, the Pender Auditorium, which is a now I, I don't think the venue exists anymore. And I had my band open up for this band, Seeds of Time, that was a local band that had a single out called My Hometown way back. You know, I was out there with a staple gun as far away as Surrey, putting up putting up posters for the six bucks a ticket. And uh, th- this thing sold out. And I, I knew that I had the instinct then to know, well, if I put my little band on with that bigger band, someone's going to see him and like, you know, typical classic opening act thing. So we put that thing on and, uh, and from the door at the Daisy, my, my good friend Ronnie Cormier was a black belt in karate. I said, well, you better work the door here. Separate from a couple of bikers showed up with some beer. He wouldn't let him in. The guy threw a full beer into his face and exploded. And the guy took off. I, I caught the guy at the bottom of the stairs and uh, that wasn't, wasn't too good for him. And uh, it's just, so this music business is pretty good. This is fun. <laughs> well, you're, you're kind of a, you're kind of a tough guy. I mean, you're, cause you're, you're a well-built guy. You always have been, you're tall and well-built. Keep talking. Keep talking. <laughs> no, it's, it's yeah. true. I mean, it's, it's true. You're not, you're not by any means a small guy. You no, know, you're, know. you're not, you've never someone. been heavy. It looks like you've always kept yourself in shape. So. Uh, reasonable, reasonable. Yeah. So, but back in the days <clears throat> when you were a bouncer, I mean, some okay in my mind's eye i can see a guy you can be intimidating but i think you would be the guy that would work it out first do you remember yeah, Har- remember harley yeah. harley was a road guy a roadie guy that used to work sure. for all the bands back in the day sure he worked for craig mcdell yeah he was a, he was a big guy and, yeah, and no, harley I, I, was I, wonderful that yeah, way because yeah, he, he could yeah. walk up to you with a handlebar mustache and muscles out to here and yeah. walk up and just go you don't really want to do this, do you? <laughs> you know, he yeah. talk people out of fighting, no matter how mad they yeah. were. Yeah, I think I think it was pretty good at talking people out. Most, I mean, there was the odd time that that, that wasn't possible, but uh, yeah, I usually you can usually talk some sense into people. Yeah, well, it's hard when they're drunk, but I mean, I, I, I that's what used to blow my mind with Harley. Just I don't want to get off on a tangent too much, but yeah. I see him with these guys that were just wanting to kill each other, and he'd bring them out in the street, and he just talk to them and go, "Really, this is the best club in town. Do you really want to be barred from here for the rest of your sure. life over this? Come on, guys, yeah. shake hands. Let's go back in and have a drink." You know? yeah, he was, he, he was, yeah, he was a big guy, big bodybuilder. Yeah. Um, ironically, so when I started booking bands at, at, at you know and working at the Daisy. You know, okay, you book a band. Back then, there was no such thing as, as an exclusive band. So, so you know, it was just really whoever whoever got the gig and got to the band first, kind of put the thing together and you know got the commission. So you, you had to really hustle. Taught me a lot. But who's going to do the contracts? Well, I used to drive up to Janet's house because her mom had a typewriter with some carbon paper between the you know in the old days you had carbon paper between the paper to make copies of the contracts. She would type my contracts because we were friends. I, I was a family you knew friend. Janet that long? Yeah, I was a friend of her brother's. I had no idea. Years. Wow. Yeah, I've known. I found, you know, it's only about fifty-eight years or something now. That's all. <laughs> but we, but we were friends. But we both went and married other folks, and then circled back later. Like I guess yeah, because I remember when you guys started dating, and I thought that was yeah. so. But you guys knew each other for that long. Well, that's that's good when you have that kind of history. Yeah. 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 It's great. Yeah. Anyway, so let's get back to uh, so you you and Bruce Allen. So. Bruce Allen is booking bands at one end of town. You're booking bands at another end of town. Is that kind of what's going on? Or? No, no, not at all. Bruce, Bruce is, I'm working the door and Bruce is pulling up in his old green cougar uh, and, and putting the Crosstown bus and thin red line and uh, so on into the Daisy. So he's booking the bands in. He represented a bunch of the top uh, bar bands around. Remember the scene then, you just came in at the tail end of it with Shama. was yeah. a bar scene, top 40 bands playing show music and you know like there was no disco 
so I met Bruce. I met I, well, I met Bruce there professionally, so to speak. But we grew up in the Dunbar area. He's a little older than me. And we're both, uh, you know, <laughs> bad kids. And so I knew who I knew who he was. Um, so I met him there. And um, so then when I started booking bands and doing all that stuff, one one uh, Shelly Siegel. <clears throat> I uh, had started working for Bruce and said to me that Bruce wanted to have a, a conversation with me. So I went down to his office and he suggested that we, that we team up and uh, we did. And, 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 you know, we're different kind of guys. So it's been a, a rough and rough and ready road, but we're good pals now. Mm-hmm. And I think we've done something together that, um, that gets ignored in a sense by the country. I, I always get a kick out of the, the, the Toronto centric uh, attitude uh, you know, out there. It's so funny because if you look at the roster of talent that our company has amassed over time from, you know, from BTO to, to Brian Adams, to Joni Mitchell, to Leonard Cohen, to, to today, Michael Buble and James Taylor and Sarah. And yeah, I'm mean, really proud of our, our collective roster. And I don't think, I think if you probably combined all the talent from Toronto or anywhere through the years and, Canada, I, I would hazard a guess that we've represented more than all of it combined. Yeah, our uh, especially on a world market. Yeah. Well, well I, I think one thing, one thing is, make, you know, the world market, I think I think one of the issues with Toronto was the population-based um, made it, a, created a mini star. There were so many people in that area, right? Mm-hmm. You got to have a mini star system. So basically, every band wanted to be Rush, you know, so there, there was some redundancy in style, whereas in, in Vancouver, you had the influence of, of the UK and Europe, you had the influence of America just across the border. And if you're, if you're an artist in Vancouver, you know, you had to get out, you had to cross the Rockies, you had to get down to the States. So you had to do something that was just not um, local, so to speak. Mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of interesting. The whole, the whole thing with, uh, when I lived in Sault Ste. Marie, and I think this goes along with what you're saying is that there was there was stars to me in Sault Ste. Marie because they would come up and do concerts in Sault Ste. Marie. Sure, they probably sure. couldn't they probably couldn't fill a bar in Toronto, yeah, you know. Yeah. But they'd be playing concerts at the Memorial Gardens in Sault Ste. Marie or, or yeah. high school gymnasiums and stuff, and they'd have records out and this sort of thing, and nobody heard of them, you know, west of of Sault Ste. Marie or yeah. maybe Thunder Bay. That's right. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I, I talked, I talked with Paul Schaefer about that. I mean, but that whole, that there seemed to be a divide, like Winnipeg was probably the divide of West and East. Yeah. You know? that's and, right. and the guess who, because it was in the middle of Canada, or as Randy likes to call it, the middle of nowhere, because you had to drive everywhere. A lot of bands broke out of that area. It was, it was so cold there. You were either a hockey player or a musician. There was nothing else well, to do in the winter. Well, do you remember, do you remember, I remember had, I remember Don Schaefer, the great, Buddy might he had that show on Sea Fox called Shape Inside the Box. Yeah. And he had those great pipes. And uh there was I forget what band it was that he somebody got him to do the you know the radio spot for them and and, and he said this. He said uh, when you're from Winnipeg, Canada, there's only two ways out hockey or rock and roll. <laughs> <laughs> it was really good. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's like that old joke. It's like uh, you're from Winnipeg. What? The only thing that ever came with Winnipeg was hockey players and hookers. You know, my wife's from Winnipeg. Oh yeah, what what team she play for? <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's good. That's good. <laughs> uh, like but, uh, okay, so now 
moving on. So, as when you guys amalgamated, you guys, you and Bruce were working under Bruce Allen Town before you went sort of your separate ways. I hope you don't. This is something I wanted to touch on. I hope you don't mind me saying this. Somebody, somebody said to me, I won't say who, that you and Bruce performed the best divorce ever because there was no <laughs> lawyers involved. You guys just shook hands, said, you take 50 percent. I take 50 percent. Let's go do our own thing and we'll and we'll feed the center. And so there was no lawyers sucking the money out of it. Is, is Well, well, OK, so there's no lawyers necessary because we never split up the company. Right? right. The only the only thing that happened was, I mean, it's a long, you know, listen, it's a long story. And, and you know, we were young and and. You know, a little bit fucking crazy, and uh, you know, we were just button heads a bit. And so, uh, so we thought we we're probably better. We, we yeah, we're like a, a divorce couple that's looking after the kids. So basically, I was pretty focused on the agency side of our business at that point. And Bruce, of course, had had a, this meteoric rise in management, uh, looking after BTO, and he'd gone on the road with them. So it was hard for him to come back. It was almost like a green beret coming back and trying to be normalized. And yeah, yeah. So he was operating at a pretty high level. I'm trying to build up this agency. So, uh, you know, so there was some clash. So, so basically I moved out of the building to move the agency and the, the smaller management stuff I was doing back then into a different location and put a name on it, which was SL. It sounded like a law firm, really SL Feldman associates and started to build up that agency. And uh, Bruce continued to build up the management. And of course, I was doing the management thing on the side, which ultimately took over and superseded whatever I, I had built with the agency nationally. So, um, you know, and we had our, you know, we had our differences and then we had our friendship and yeah, I mean, it, you know, it's been, it's been a rocky road, but I would say that uh, the Bruce and I have come through this uh, probably as better friends than ever. Um, so there was no, there was no divorce. Ultimately yeah. there was just uh, a separation, so to speak. I see. Okay, here's here's a really good question, because um, you've had. That's what you say. <laughs> let's let's hope it's a good question, because um, you've had some incredible success as a manager over the past like twenty years or so. It's been unbelievable the people that you've taken on. Is there anybody that you regret not signing at this point? Somebody that slipped through your fingers that you went, "Geez, I wish I could have done that." You mean somebody that I could that I could have but didn't, or somebody you should have pursued? Let's say. Um, no, I mean, I, yeah, probably, but I'm probably forgetting. I think that, uh, I mean, there's obviously lots of folks I would have loved to, have, you know, love to have managed, you know, for sure, you know, love to manage Ed Sheeran, but don't know him. You know I mean? There's lots, right. there's lots, there's lots of that. Um, not, not really. I mean, just, uh, no, not really. Not really. Some of that I said, you know what, that's not that's not really worth it. And then they went on to some great success. No, I can't think of anyone off the top of my head like that. So what year did you and Steve Macklem come together? God, I'm really bad with years. So so our agency represented Colin James. Right. And uh, so I got to know Steve. And this is probably, my God, it was probably, well, it's over 20 years ago. And Steve, Steve was a, was a, you know, one of those managers focused on one artist only. And, you know, and that's, that, that's a good thing. And, did and he, what did happened? Come, did he come out of the Bumstead uh, fold? He did. He was with, he was with Larry Wanagas and I, and something happened there where they, you know, they split up and, and uh, I guess Steve wound up with Colin and Larry wound up with uh, Katie Lang. Right. 
And Steve got to know the chieftains in Ireland pretty good. And they wanted to make a change in management, and but they wanted more of a structure. So Steve was like an independent guy, kind of working out of the, the house at that point. And he thought that if he teamed up with me, we'd be able to sign him. So we did. And uh, and my thinking at the time was, because I'd be really, you know, busting it, trying to, trying to break Trooper into America. And it was a really, really a difficult thing to do was to take a Canadian act who was successful and break him in America really, really hard. So along came Steve with the Chieftains, and I knew that they were they were an artist that could sell out theaters in America, and I knew that that was a way into America, and I knew that there was a way to collaborate with them to expand the, the possibilities for some, some of our clients. So we teamed up on the Chieftains, and then uh, really the rest went from there because that, that enabled uh, Joni Mitchell, and of course then the credibility of Joni Mitchell enabled Diana Krall and you know Nora Jones, and you know on and on from so there. did the artist start coming to you guys? Is that what it was? Combin- a bit of a combination. You know, some come to you, some don't. I mean, I mean, it's interesting, but a lot of times you just have a, a, a friendship. You know, for example, with Joni, Steve was friends with her boyfriend, Don Fried, and got to know Joni. So there was this on, ongoing social thing that happened for five or six months, and then we met and spent time with her in the and. <sighs> And next thing she throws it out, hey, maybe you guys can look after me as opposed to us just kind of, you know, pursuing her. Um, same thing with James Taylor. I mean, I met James socially uh, with Joni a number of times before I got brought on originally as a tour consultant. And then I made a record deal for him and made every other deal for him. And, uh, you know, one thing led to the next. Uh, I have to thank my partner in that, Mike Gorfain from Dorfing Schwartz in America, who was, who was consulting for him on, on just, just generally because he didn't have a manager. So they brought me in as a tour consultant because I knew that stuff pretty good. And then the relationship just grows. And, and it's really, as you know, as an artist, it's, a, it's as much about trust as anything. Mm-hmm. So when there's a, when they, you know, they get comfortable with you, they're, they, you know, they, they're, they're okay. They feel better about handing it over to them as opposed to just, here's a straight business deal. Let's just meet over the desk and it's straight business. Yeah, and it's a yeah. pretty intense relationship. Yeah, you know, there's got to be trust. Right. Um, no, there's an artist, eh? James Taylor. Good Lord. Well, all of them. I mean, really. I mean, all the people in, in, that you've handled, from Joni to Diana Krall, James Taylor, Nora Jones. But James Taylor, to me, he's as, as big as he is, I still think he should be bigger. <laughs> you know, he's just one of those guys. Yeah. For one thing, nobody plays acoustic guitar and gets acoustic guitar sounds like that guy. It's yeah, unbelievable, yeah. his touch. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. People people underestimate, you know, because you're a guitar player, so you understand it, but the people that don't play the guitar don't understand how complicated the things that he does uh, are. I mean, he is a, just an amazing, well, an amazing artist and an amazing person. Fantastic. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I was I was listening to a, uh, to a, a, a show a while back about his beginnings and stuff, and he was... Was it, was it the Audible? Was it his show on the Audible thing that he did? No, no, no. It was actually oh, something you, you, totally different. It was actually an interview with somebody totally different talking about James Taylor's early days. Okay, so you really need to get the Audible book Break Shot, which is James talking about his life up to age 21. It's just unbelievable. It's yeah. so well done. He's uh, so articulate and uh, so incisive, uh, intelligent, just really, really something. Yeah. 
Well, and it's, it's so amazing. Those those days of the singer-songwriter, they were a magical time. There was a Carly Simon hymn, uh, of course, Carol King, the queen of them all. And uh, you know, all that stuff was happening. And that Elton John sort of rode that wave in as well. That was yes. all part of that same thing that was going on. It was like, it was a much more intimate way of presenting music. Well, I think the, the so that era of musician, uh, you know, the... Uh, Laurel Canyon days really just just came after an era when it was really singers, you know, singers and songwriters were two different things. You had the whole Brill building thing where that's where the term A&R, guy, artist, and repertoire, that was the guy that put artists and, you know, music together. Right. And then all of a sudden you had this, this wave of people starting with folk singers moving into, into, into you know, Laurel Canyon starting to write about their own experiences as opposed to, you know, I went to the dance or, you know, you're my girl and that kind of stuff. And, and then of course the biggest segment of the population, the baby boomers were looking for a change caught on. Then you had the little drug thing come in and all that alchemy of all that, you know, exploded that music. If you think about it, what came out of there. Is just oh yeah. Phenomenal. So it's, it's uh and we've been very, really, really lucky to uh, to represent some of those people that were just, uh, you know, the forerunners of the, of the entire generation. Yeah, I got a, a quick, I, so I got Quiet, a quick question if it's Quiet, okay Scott. that lends into this. Sam, uh, you, you've obviously worked with so many A-list artists. I mean, really, it, it, it set the tone for music for for many, many years with many of the artists that you've worked with and represented. What's your secret sauce? How do you know when you see an artist that there's something special there? Is there, is, is there anything in particular that you're looking for? Or? You know, I don't, I don't approach it. Like, I got a big glare on my head. Yeah, the, the sun's getting brighter, I think. Is it, is it kind of weird? Sun's coming up. Yeah. yeah. I wonder if I can move. Yeah, you're, you're a little washed out. That's for sure. Okay. Let's, let's put a pause button. I'm going to move into a better spot. Okay. Okay. Sure. Okay, so yeah, so ask the question again. Ask the question again. Sure. Yeah. So, you know, you work with so many amazing artists, A-listers that have really set the tone for so many different music genres internationally. What do you look for in an artist that makes you say there's something special there? Is there anything particular that just it, it clicks with you or is it just a process to get Not, you to that know, point? Or? I, I think it's I think it's it, it starts out as gut, uh, just gut feel and and then and then there's a certain amount of analysis that goes with it uh you know and i mean and we think about it it's, it's really does someone have uh a, a, a really a really memorable a really sorry a really memorable voice that uh you know in other words not necessarily celine dion hit hit the notes crazy in a crazy way but it's, right. it's a voice like a Nora jones whose voice is you're, you hear it instantly, you know that voice is so recognizable. If it comes on the radio or whatever, it's just one of those iconic voices. Right. Is there a lyric that might that, that just might completely movie change the world? Go all the way back to me walking up the street and, and Bob Dylan's song coming out and me going, wow, that's, that's, you know, what was it about that? I still don't know what Positively Four Street's about. 
you know, well, I know somehow, <laughs> somehow it, it kind of got me. Right. Uh, is there some energy like, like the Beatles the first time I heard them? I mean, it's just, it's just, uh, it really, it really is more or less a gut thing. And then there's a certain amount of, okay, that's really cool. But uh, am I just going to be hitting my head against the wall completely and not, and not, it's not so much about, am I going to waste my time and, and uh, not make any money? It, it's really more about, am I going to match the expectations of that artist? So if an artist right. comes along and is doing something that's really, really alternative that I think is super talented and they maybe think they're going to be, you know, playing in front of 80,000 people. And I recognize that I, I don't think so. Then, then we're going to have a, you know, a disconnect at some point in our relationship. Yeah. So it's also about what's the expectation of the artist and um, as to whether I get involved. Um, I mean, you know, we, we're, we, we, we try to help develop some younger artists in our company. And there, there was this young artist, uh, you know, who really shows some, some promise and was asking me a question. And I, and I said to him, I said, look, let me ask you a question. Are you, are you really interested in playing for, you know, like, like a, an arena full of people? Or are you interested in playing for your own audience? And he said, you know, I just want the people that listen to my music to really get it and love it. And I don't care if it's a club site. And I went, okay, we're going to help you. Like, like I, I like, I like that. Like he really wanted mm -hmm. to get a message across as opposed right. to just be, a, just be a star. That's kind of a different game. So I don't know. It's, it's really, it's a gut thing. And guess what? I'm not always right. You know, I just got to be right more than I'm wrong. So got a pretty good batting average. Yeah. Yeah. It's not bad, but, but also being lucky enough to, uh, to, to get, uh, uh, you know, hired on with some artists that, that have already, you know, created careers for themselves and stuff. So that's cool too. Anybody out there right now that really turns your crank, somebody out there that's happening that you go, wow, this is like, any new, artists, mean, any new artists that really like really turn well, your crank? Well, you mean new artists that, that I represent or that are just out there? Just anybody. You mentioned that Ed Sheeran, for example. Oh, you mean like just the bigger artists? Oh, you know, I can't think of anyone off the you know off, off the top of my head. That's uh, you know you, you know what happens as you as you advance. You're, you're not. As, I'm I'm not as tuned in as I was when I was maybe sixteen, seventeen, twenty. Yeah, but. Um, Here's a good way to ask that. Who's on your playlist? Yeah. Well, now that's an interesting question. So if I if I gave you, I made this playlist. Well, here. Okay. How about this? I'll just look at my playlist. All right. I'll show you. <laughs> yeah. Who's on Sam's playlist? Because that, that this probably speaks a lot. Yeah. That's a very good question. And like I'll that. just go. And I love this. And, and I love Spotify for that reason, which is I might not like it for some other reason. And, and, and my playlist is, I got a bunch of playlists, right? But if I look at my what I call just like a party place. If I'm having people over for dinner, it goes from the temptations to Michael McDonald, to Bruno Mars, to Sam Smith, to Frank Sinatra, to Tony Bennett, to Bobby Darren, to Nat King Cole, to Michael Buble, to Diana Krall, to Fred Astaire, to Sarah McLaughlin, to uh, Al Green, to wow. uh, Gladys Knight, to Smokey Robinson, to James Taylor, um, all the way to Duke Ellington, Neil Diamond, Journey, Frankie Valley, Rod Stewart, Jimmy Ruffin, Bob Dylan, Van Morrison. That's some range. What a mess. Wow. So, so, so that's, that's, a, that's kind of an But, you know, it's funny, but when we have uh, a dinner party or something, we throw that thing on, people all go, wow, that's a great playlist. Where'd you get that? Yeah, my taste is really eclectic that way. There's, um, there's a young artist I've been working with for a couple of years, Jordan Smith. Jordan won The Voice a few years ago. 
I just remember he's the guy that finished up with uh, somebody to love. Uh, big big guy with just this unbelievable, well, maybe, maybe the best voice I've ever heard in my life. Just a fantastic, fantastic singer and a, just a beautiful guy. And um, first record, well, his Christmas record did well. First record on Republic was a complete mismatch because they're, they're more about Drake and, uh, you know, that kind of stuff. So, but he's moved into the faith-based music field. So more of a, a Christian record is coming out, but just he's from the heart. And, and, and that's the other thing you asked me, what do I look for? I, I look for a voice that's connected to the heart, if you understand that. In other words, mm-hmm. when you hear Sarah McLaughlin sing, it's impossible to not understand the emotion that comes through. She can't even she can't even be in a sound check without her heart coming through the music, mm-hmm. right? So it, it's kind of, it's kind of like that. Is there you know how real is it? Are they are they really feeling it? Or are they just you know pretending? As a follow on to that, about, you yeah, talked before about voices too, about the uh, about the quirkiness. Like you talk about Bob Dylan, who attracted you, but even going back to some of the earlier bands that you managed, like Ray McGuire could be known as having a quirky voice. Doug Bennett, especially, yeah. Uh, but those, yeah. There was no mistaking who they were when you heard them sing. That's right. Exactly. You know? right. So there's yeah. that connection too. There's the great voices and the quirky voices. Sometimes, well, look at Randy Bachman. His biggest hits have been with him singing. That's right. Like, yeah. I mean, he's, you know, I mean, he certainly is no God's gift to uh, voices, but he's got a voice that's not, you know, immistakable. Yeah. yeah. And, and well, in his case, you know, songs with monster hooks, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Anyway, sorry, but did I cut yeah. you off, Scott? I'm sorry. Oh, no, it was a Charles. Was, sorry oh, about sorry. that. No, Sam, you were speaking about the artists that you've represented, and I'm wondering, you've had the opportunity to work with such amazing talent. What common characteristics have you seen that allow these people to have such stamina, like James Taylor and Sarah McLaughlin? Like, what are the characteristics? Like, what's the grit factor that allows them to to stay on as a as an artist? The longevity? Yeah. Um, I, I think that... Um, you know, when an artist is coming up, they're they're building a constituency, okay, a, a constituency of, of fans, if you will, that really lock in. And sometimes that's that's very wide. But it, it's what has their connection been? How powerful is that connection? So that people will stay with them. How visceral are some of the experiences that people have had? You know, listening to or reacting to their music, and in particular. What is the live music experience being? Mm. You know, it, it's always more powerful when these folks have, have gone out and toured a lot and put on shows that connected with the audience in, in, in a big way. Not just not just lights and, and sound and, you know, you know, pyro and all that shit, but, but what's that connection been? And that connection is rarely made unless the artist really means what they're saying and singing. Yeah, so I think the art, the artist that, that I represent, because when, when I, I go to the shows and I, and I, I see that connection. And I see what people say, you know, about them. And I think if that connection is powerful, as much as other artists are always coming up, there's there's a certain constituency that sticks with that artist forever. And one of my jobs as manager is to try to broaden that, try to broaden that constituency through, you know, you know, obviously awareness, promotion, publicity, you know, news, and so on. Thank you. What's okay? So. In your situation right now, how active are you in the management business? Are you still actively managing? Have you have you sort of relaxed it? Is it have you left it to other people? 
I would say it, it kind of works like this. You know, when I was coming up as a young guy, I just wanted to build and build and build and build a big company because I felt that a build company could have, could, could have more clout to affect the career of an artist. It's just, uh, there's one thing to be an independent, just looking after the day-to-day needs. It's a tough business and you got to, you've got to have some muscle, right? So I wanted to build a bigger and bigger company. And as you, you know, as you get a little older, you, you know, the growing thing starts to slow down because the, the amount of energy it takes to break into your artists or get involved is just massive. So at this point, um, the younger folks in the organization are always trying to help and look, look for new talent. But um, for Steve and I, and, and I think Bruce to some extent, it's just, it's really about looking after the clientele that we've had for a long time, our core, you know, whether it's Albus, Estella or Diana or James or Sarah and the rest of them is just a really, it's, it's, a, it's a full time thing for us both personally and corporately to look after these people. So there's no slowdown. This is a job you can't do this part-time. You know this, Mick. It's like pushing a rock up a hill. The minute you stop, it's going to fall right on your head. Yeah. So you got to keep pushing. So, I mean, I might be over here in, in, in Hawaii because of the coronavirus, but it's just about, I'm, I'm on this phone just as much as ever. And, uh, and I, I don't have any interest in retiring or quitting because just um, – it just doesn't appeal to me. The whole the whole notion of doing nothing doesn't doesn't really appeal. Well, you retire to do what you like. If you already do what you like, you've you know well, you have you, the best of both worlds. Yeah. yeah, I remember once I said to Tony Bennett, uh, I said, Tony, man, you work so hard, man. I, I wish you could give a seminar to some of my clients. He says, I've never worked a day in my life. He said, Wow. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I used to say that all the time. I don't go to work. Yeah. I go to play. Yeah. 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 Interesting. Um, so where do you see the music business right now? I mean, there's a lot of people that have, uh, you know, condemned the Spotify, as you, you sort of alluded to a bit, the iTunes and yeah. the revenue from artists, the streaming as opposed to record sales. I mean, we know that's affected everybody. Where do you see it going? It's. I think that, uh, that that's a double-edged sword. Uh, you know, a young artist can, can basically establish their own career, um, you know, releasing independently, uh, you know, in that format. But the competition's immense. They talk. They used to talk about the long tail in the early, early days of streaming, and, and it's now true. There's all kinds of music that you can hear. I can go on Spotify and hear anything—the most obscure thing ever. Well, I heard but a stat. Problem. I heard a stat that sixty-five thousand songs are released every day. Yeah, I believe that. Yeah. I'm so, sure. so how do you, so how do you break through that? Yeah. Um, and and the the income is really relegated to those at the very top of that equation. So so you know money from 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 records is uh, is more difficult. Um, so, you it's know gone, so it's gone back. Records have become souvenirs, like they were in the yeah. beginning. They were just yeah, sold well, as swag at the beginning, and now they they've become that again. The only time you sell well, is shows. I tell my clients that you know you're making a new record. It's nothing more than an expensive poster for your tour, right? Yes, and, and that's what it is. Um, so that, that, that's disconcerting. Um, the other thing that's more, this maybe even more disconcerting is the, is the fact that people put out songs and the younger generation is really just listening to songs and not albums. And they're not really with, with rare exception, they're not connecting with an artist long-term. Well, I talked about this constituency thing. It, that's a, that's a much harder thing to build. Now there is, there are exceptions. It's a lot harder to build. So, so I, I don't know. I, I think the, I think the music business, on the artist side, I think is, is getting more and more difficult. I think on the, uh, on the money side, 
the record companies have figured it out and they're making a fortune. So they, they kind of woke up and went, well, if it streams, does it make any difference to me if I have a hundred artists streaming 10 times each, or if I have one artist streaming a thousand times, it's the same income to them. Yeah. So they are killing it. They're making a, they're making a fortune. And, um, you know, as far as development's concerned, that's a problem because the artists are, or the record companies are now in a position financially to set up massive uh, research labs, so to speak. And they, and they simply, you know, scroll the, uh, the internet and they wait till someone pops up on their own, getting a whole bunch of streams. There's enough of a buzz. There's your development phase. They jump in, they make a deal and take it from there. So that used to be, uh, we need to, you know, we need to cover tour shortfall. We need to put that band on the road for two years. They need to learn their craft. They learn to build up a direct to the, uh, the audience, uh, uh, you know, skill set and um, and develop as artists. Where it's completely different now. It's all it's all all generalized. It's mostly just song oriented. So it's a different world for sure. And it's coming directly from the artists most more these days than ever before. It always kind of did. To a degree, artists always had to, at least in some form, build, like you said, their own sort of constituency and build that up to a point of where they get noticed by somebody like you, let's say back in the day, this is let's take it to this level, let's see if we can move into this level, and then pushing it again and again. But now it's almost like an artist has to sell a million copies, they have to have probably 30 million streams before they're even noticed, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's insane. It's insane. Um, I, it's hard to say where it's going to go from here. I, I, I it's all guesswork. Um, it's certainly uh, artists only make money from live shows these days, for the most part. Pretty much, pretty uh, much. Or endorsement deals or things like this. Yeah. I suppose. Movie. Yeah. Movie. General. Gen- generally speaking. Yeah. Yeah. Movie soundtracks or or sound- songs and movies. That's you know. Not much there. No. Yeah. Not a lot there. That's that, that, you know, that's really more about uh, if you get lucky to uh, to get a visual representation of your song that basically enhances the song and gets it gets you, you know, gets you known as an artist. That, that's what that's about. Right. Yeah. But the, that's pretty much all that's left. It seems, you know, because to rise well, up. There, well, if you're a writer, if you know, look, if you're a writer, there there is revenue and there is there is revenue from there is revenue to get enough streams and stuff. But it, it, it's definitely more difficult. Mm-hmm. I know it's, it's it, it, I uh, we're going to probably have some sort of symposium on this show and talk with some people and pull pull them in on on where they feel this is all going because um and but it everybody's guess is as good as everybody else's at this point you know I mean uh like you say the record companies are, are making money hand over foot but and only the people at the very top echelon, like the Beyonce's and the Drake's, as you mentioned, and that sort of thing, are the ones that are they're making gazillions. They're making more money than has ever been made in the music business before. Yeah. But it's a 360 it, deal. Yeah, well, look, the record companies, the smart guys, banked on the notion that that eventually music will be like water and, and electricity and every house will just basically have like a tap that turns it on and they'll pay a, a one subscription fee that will get divided up in, amongst all the musicians. And, and, and it'll be so huge because it'll be every home virtually that, that even the smaller artists will, will share in the revenue in a, in a, in a better way. That's, that's the get, you know, I don't know if that happens or not. I don't think it happens for a while. Maybe it's five or seven or 10 years, but it might, might go that way. But I mean, in a funny kind of way, our artists that didn't break through 
20 years ago weren't making a lot of money either. No, that's you know, true. I mean, yeah, you've got to get to a certain point yes. just to, you know, to earn revenue. Yeah, if, if, you, if you sold a half a million copies of an album back in the day, you still owed money. You know? Yeah, we had a smart guy like me that would go into a record company and say, well, that half million means it should be five million, which means you should advance them some money. And you kind of get the, you know. <laughs> right, right, right. But, but you know, people, there's, there's a certain side of my brain that says, you know, uh, when people are bitching about streaming and all this sort of stuff, I go, well, in, in a way, I mean, having me being a never was in that regard, I've never been part of that thing. I've only seen it from the outside looking in. And, but, you know, I don't really think, see it that much different. I just don't. And not and unless, you know, except for a band could actually have a career on a million, sell, a million selling album. But nowadays, there's no such thing as a million selling album. So, you know, that's the only real difference. Well... It's pretty different. Like if you, if you were an artist that sold 500 to a million units back then, you, you made some revenue and, and basically that meant you had enough of a stature to tour to make money from that. And, you know, if you were in that category, you can make, you can make pretty living. Right. Okay. Um, so where, where does Sam go from here? I know we're, we're limited for time with you and I don't want to take I'm, I'm going to the beach. No, <laughs> no training. Yeah. No, yeah. Uh, I think I just get, I keep doing what I'm doing. Yeah, you, know, oh. you know, we just keep we just keep looking after our, our artists, so we keep our eye open for anyone else that we might want to represent. I mean, I've had way more time. I think you know that I sold my agency business a couple of years ago, and that enabled a lot more time for uh, for our management uh, side of the business, which was you know I guess bigger and more international in, in stature. So there's that, and also I. I uh, I mean, I've always been an entrepreneur, so I'm in a number of other businesses, right? And just founding a couple of new ones, uh, mushroom business, cannabis business, liquor business, all, all kinds of stuff just for fun and uh, keep my brain active. So, uh, you know, there's no, uh, it doesn't seem to be a slowdown, <laughs> which is, it's really, it's really odd. It's really odd, but there doesn't seem to be a slowdown. Well, it depends on where you're at. I mean, really, I mean, I haven't played in front of an audience since it's been over a year now. It was March 7th of last year was the last time I played in front of people for real. Oh. And, but, but I've probably been busier than ever before. Yeah. 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 You know, so, cause it, it depends on where your mindset is. I mean, it's like, I, I, I put 10 hours a day in my studio, just working on projects and things. So yeah. there's, a, there's always another way to do it. That's and right. I'll, I'll come out of it with more to offer. Yeah. Yeah. Not, not yeah. You know, I mean, you're that kind of person. I think I am too, that, that, if all of a sudden something leaves or you're not doing one thing, it isn't like you're staring at out space. You kind of find something else and you dig in. Right? Yeah, of course. Uh -huh. that's, kind of, of course. That's, that's kind of how you do it. It's just, uh, yeah. If you're, the, if you're in the business this long, it's, you know, you're a lifer that you're, you're always finding. I mean, yeah. I, I'm pretty much reinventing myself probably on the average every two years. That's good. That keeps you, you young. Know, you it, was James, it, it was James Taylor's birthday yesterday, and I sent him a note, and I said, there's, there's a great line that the old baseball pitcher Satchel Page said, right? You know, guys like me getting old, he said, you know, if you didn't know how old you was, how old would you be? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Very true. That's a, good, yeah. that's a great it, way to look know, at The it. only odd thing every once in a while is, is like, as you get a little older and, and, you're, and you're talking to some artist who's in, in the 20s, and I just wonder, they're looking at me going, that guy's, you know, ancient, right? So there's a certain there's a certain amount of that where you're just not, uh, in some ways, to some 
younger artists, maybe not as relevant and all that, that kind of stuff, but that's, that's okay. Just, uh, we just carry on. I was talking to the group today before you came on and, uh, I, I was relaying a story that, reminded me back when um when prism got Henry small in and, and ron tobacco was doing nothing anyway they formed the ron tobacco band ron tobacco yeah. for you international yeah. people ron tobacco was the original lead singer of the band prism from canada and i was asked to play guitar in that band and so there's john hall rocket norton and ron tobacco from prism don yonder from trooper and me on guitar now I was 23 at that time, and I remember seeing graffiti all over the the clubs that we were playing in the dressing room, saying the Ron Tabak Band, Recliner Rockers. The oldest person in that band might have been 30, it's and it, it's like, are you kidding me? Like, and so I was saying to these to the gang here, I was going, now you see why I, when I was approaching 25, I was sweating. My career was over. I'm going, what am I going to do? It's yeah. amazing. I, it still amazes me that I'm still in the business after all these years. Ditto. I, I can remember saying to myself, dead serious, man, if you find me backstage at some concert when I'm 40, take me out and fucking shoot me. <laughs> and, 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 on, and on my 40th birthday, literally, I was in Toronto at Lee's Palace with Art Bergman trying to get him off heroin and on stage, right? And that's where I was on my 40th birthday. <laughs> this is wrong. This is so wrong. That's unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, well, yeah. Mark LaFrance, uh, we both know Mark dearly. And Mark has always said, never say never. You know, yeah, he, the, the he, minute you I, say I, never, I, you're going to find yourself going to that place you said you'll never do. He just put out, uh, he just put out a new album. He just, just sent it to me the, the, just the other day. I haven't heard it yet. It's just good for him. Well, yeah, no, gotta, it's, it's actually a song that we co-wrote. Uh, oh, that's cool. Yeah. It's, and I did the video as well. That's what I mean. I've been busy. <laughs> there's a great, there's a great, actually, you remind, Henry Small, but it's reminded me of, I heard that uh, when when uh, Prism looked like they were going to b- break through, and, and Bruce and Bruce Allen called up Henry and he said he, he said he said you're going to be big small. <laughs> <laughs> Henry Small, well, there's now, see there's another one as like now there is a voice that's unbelievable. Every time I've heard, I, I remember the first time I heard him sing was with this band Small Wonder backing up April Wine when I was 17 years old. And I remember going, who is this yeah. guy? Okay, I never well, heard a, a voice like listen, that. that. Well, that's a whole other topic. All the great talent that doesn't break through and why, you know, we know why good talent breaks through, but you know, the, the great talent that doesn't break through, you know, they, they didn't get a, a shot or, or they were the best bell bottoms in tight pants season or whatever. It's just uh that part, that part's sad because there are people with. Uh, well, your band Shama was was fantastic, right? Yeah. I mean, you guys had a real, you guys had a real shot. I think, uh, I think we were all young, and maybe you guys over, you, you overthought everything a little bit too much, and somehow it just kind of went away. Our, you have our, that our biggest problem: we, we didn't have the songs. We just didn't have yeah. the songs. We yeah. had everything else in place. We didn't have the songs. Yeah. Yeah. So, and it's like anything, it, it, all the pieces of that pie have to be perfect. You've got to have the yeah. right law firm. You've got to have the right record company. You've got to have the right management, the right band, the right look, the right marketing, yeah. the right, you know, everything has yeah. to be. And if any one of those pieces of the pie are missing, you're toast. Yeah. It's yeah. Gonna work. Yeah. Yeah. It's true. Yeah. It's true. Yeah, yeah. It's lining up. Well, thank you for your time, Sam. I know you have to run and this has been yeah. absolutely wonderful. And I really appreciate you, uh, uh, you calling us up and allowing us to do this and uh, pleasure. Great. Yeah. Great. yeah thank great. you so much, Sam. It's just been I, wonderful. I, hope we, I hope I get to you, see Sam. you soon. I, it's been a long time. I live in Victoria now. I got, I got, yeah, yeah, yeah. I kind of knew that. Like, like, I see Mike Sicoli the odd time and uh, he told me that. So yeah, yeah. good for you. Yeah. Well, you guys are golfing buddies. So, that's right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs>
Yeah, well, great. Well, thanks, thanks so much, Sam. I really appreciate it. And we'll talk soon. Okay, thank you. Take care, Take Sam. Care. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks, Bye-bye. thanks for coming on the show. Take care. Pleasure. Hey, thanks for joining us. Check out our many other podcasts featuring vignettes and full episodes from a growing list of recording artists and other music insiders. And please like, share, and subscribe to our channel so we can bring you more great content from this and many other shows we're now producing. Available both on podcast and video on demand.